Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Now, at this point, we come to the point where uh, we are going to open the scripture. I'm going to read from the scripture and uh, share a sermon, share a message from the scripture. But first, um, I want to give you a little sense of where we're going in the coming weeks and months as a church. Um, Our mission statement, as you see on our sign and all over the place, is that we follow Jesus together. It's really that simple. As a church, our primary mission, our primary goal in life is to follow Jesus and to do it together as a family. Um, And as we do that, we become more like Jesus altogether. And so we've got tools for that. We've got a discipleship tool that I'll be sharing with you. Um, We've got different groups. There are many different ways to plug in so that you can grow spiritually and grow in relationship with one another as we become like Jesus. Uh, And as we do this, we want to make it clear that joining us on this journey doesn't mean that you believe absolutely everything that everybody else believes in this group, right? Uh, Coming and belonging uh, doesn't mean that you totally affirm everything that everybody believes or even everything the church believes. We want to invite everybody on this journey together as we become like Jesus because we see the necessity of every single voice in this conversation Uh, because everybody, uh, every voice shapes who we are. Um, And every voice shapes how we walk this journey toward Jesus together. And so we're going to be exploring that idea of following Jesus together uh, today from Ephesians chapter 2. And then starting next week, we're going to start a new preaching series, a new teaching series that also will be something that we studied through the week through some of our groups. um, uh, And that's in the book of Esther. And so we're going to spend about nine weeks, uh, maybe ten, talking about the book of Esther. And this is really cool um, because Esther is the one book of the Bible that does not mention God at all. Um, Yeah, I know, right? Like a weird place to start. Okay, let's let's go to the one book that doesn't talk about God in the least. Um, And I've created these study guides for you. And so you are welcome to grab one on your way out. You'll be, there will be people who can hand them out. They're in a stack back there on our little info table. You can grab one of these, whether you're going to be here or not, whether you're going to be walking with us or not. If, you just wanna, if you're more interested in the book of Esther and want to learn more about it, you can grab one of those to help you in your study uh, along the way. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun time. It's going to be really fun conversations to have uh, as we walk through the book of Esther. Again, a book that does not mention the name of God. And uh, as we live in an increasingly secular culture and world where the name of God is not mentioned even sometimes within our Christian communities, um, it's great to see how God is always at work behind the scenes, even when he's not explicitly up front. Um, And so it's going to be a fun time. So I invite you to join us in that journey. I invite you to go ahead and grab one of these and take it, whether you're going to be on this journey with us or somewhere else or not at all. That's totally okay. Um, But that's what we're going to be doing. And then uh, as we move out of Esther and we move into the Advent season, we're going to be talking about um, some of our anxieties and some of our insecurities, some of the things that keep us uh, from fully following Jesus or that hold us back in our life. And so we're going to go into a series called Darkness to Light um, over Advent as we move toward Christmas, where we're really talking about those barriers that we have in our lives that are keeping us from fully following Jesus. Uh, so I invite you the rest of the year on this journey with us, uh, invite you to become a part of, of the community here, uh, to, sh- to bring your love and to be loved uh, 
uh, as we follow Jesus together. So, um, we're, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 2 today, um, we're, I'm not going to call Terry up to read the scripture this morning, um, mainly because the scripture changed like five times in the past week um, and, and landed on a whole chapter, which is just a lot. So um, we're going to jump right in to the scripture. Let me pray over us and over God's word before we begin. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for everyone assembled here together, assembled here by your will, by your calling. Thank you, God, for bringing us together this day so that we can love each other, so that we can be loved by you together. Thank you for bonding together the community of Christ, bonding together the church through the work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that today you would humble us so that we would humbly stand not over your word, but under it. Not over your instruction and your teaching, but that we would be shaped by it. God, I pray that every time we approach your word, every time we approach the Holy Scripture, we would do so with immeasurable humility, recognizing that you are our authority, recognizing that you are the one who has loved us and brought us to life. And when we come to your word, we are engaging with the living God who has loved us beyond measure and called us his own. And that in gratitude, Lord, we would then turn and devote ourselves to your way of life, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, Like I said, we're in Ephesians chapter 2 today, and we're exploring the idea of what it means to follow Jesus together. Now, you got to understand what's going on and and what even Ephesians is. I'm not assuming that we're all super familiar with all of the books of the Bible. So Ephesians is a letter. Ephesians is a letter that was written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who started a church in a city called Ephesus way back when. And he spent two years hanging out in the city of Ephesus, getting this church going. And he was working with local church leaders. Now, when you imagine the church in this day and age, back in the 40s to 60s AD, don't imagine one building, don't imagine one place with a whole bunch of people gathered together, right? These are little house gatherings all across the city. And so the Apostle Paul's been there, and he's been talking to these church leaders, and he's been helping to build up this church, and he would get together with everybody whose house a church gathered in. So you might imagine 12, 15 people gathered in one house where they would come together, and the main thing that they would do is sing hymns and have a meal. And in that meal, they would include what we would call the Eucharist, or communion, at the time. Uh, And then someone would potentially open the scripture and read it. Now, at that point, all from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, until these churches started getting letters from their leaders, and specifically from guys we call apostles. The apostles were handpicked by Jesus to lead the church, to lead his movement. And Paul was one of those who was handpicked by Jesus. A little bit later than the others, because Paul never met Jesus face to face, Paul was actually a persecutor of the church. His name was Saul. He was what's called a Pharisee. He was a leading religious leader of the day. And he hated the Christian church at the beginning because he thought that these followers of Jesus, these followers of this rabbi Jesus, were corrupting 
Judaism. He thought they were corrupting the faith. They were teaching wrong things, and they were leading people astray. And it was better for their leaders to die than for them to continue leading people astray. And so Paul, originally Saul, is hanging out in Jerusalem one day, and he's listening to this guy named Stephen preaching this sermon. Stephen is one of the earliest followers of Jesus. And he's, he, Stephen is about to be stoned for his belief in Jesus. And not just for belief in Jesus, but for leading people to follow Jesus. And so the religious leaders have gotten around, and they've gathered around Stephen, and Stephen delivers this incredibly powerful and impactful sermon to all of these religious leaders in Jerusalem. And we read that there was a young guy named Saul who was standing off to the side watching this happen and approving of everything that happened as the religious leaders picked up stones and they stoned Stephen to death. Then Paul, Saul at this point, goes to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and asks for a decree that will allow him to travel throughout the region persecuting the church. He's allowed to bring charges against any Christian leaders that he finds. And he's on his way to a city called Damascus. Damascus still exists today. It's one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. It's been war-torn for years now. But that's where Paul's going. Damascus was kind of the center of the region at the time. Major, major city, major crossroads for trade. And so the Christians had gone to Damascus in order to help to begin to move this, get this movement going. They were going to one of the major centers um, to get the movement going. And on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, Saul gets knocked off his horse or his donkey or whatever he's riding, right? He gets knocked off by this blinding light. And he hears the voice of Jesus that says, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus blinds Paul and says, okay, I want you to go and you're going to go meet this guy named Ananias and he's going to teach you. And on the way, I'm going to tell you all the things you're going to suffer for my sake. And so Jesus makes Saul a follower of him, changes his name to Paul. And then Paul becomes the first great missionary of the church to non-Jewish people. Paul gets the commission from Jesus himself to go to non-Jews. And so he goes, Paul goes and he, he learns for years. He begins to follow Jesus and he learns what he needs to know to be able to lead the church. And then he comes back to Jerusalem and he has this meeting with the leaders in Jerusalem who are all serving Jewish followers of Jesus. And Paul says, hey, I need to go to the Gentiles. I need to go to the non-Jews. And they have this agreement. And Paul is sent out from Jerusalem to go to all of the Gentile world and bring the good news of Jesus. And that's how he ends up in Ephesus. There are a few more stops along the way, right? But eventually he ends up in Ephesus. And Paul spends two years in Ephesus getting this church started. He loves these people. In fact, one of the only episodes in the book of Acts that we have of Paul leaving a place on good terms is in Ephesus where he calls the leaders of the church in Ephesus together and he says, hey, I'm on my way to Rome and I'm going to be in prison there um, and I, I just want to see you one last time because I love you so much. And so he meets the leaders of the church outside of the city because he knows if he goes into the city, he's going to be targeted by the pagan leadership, by the leaders of the temples in the city. 
And so Paul goes and meets the leaders of the Ephesian church outside the city. And they have this really long, extended, tearful goodbye. And he commissions them to be faithful to Jesus in all that they do. And then he's taken to Rome where he's imprisoned. And some years later, Paul writes this letter back to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesians is beautiful because most of the letters that Paul writes are correcting some major problem in the church. They're correcting some major issue that's going on in the church in a city. You can read the letter to the Galatians or the letter to the Colossians, and you see that there's something going on in that church that's tearing people apart or leading people astray. And so Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, and there's, there's none of that. You don't really get the sense that Paul's trying to correct something. This is just a letter of encouragement. And so Paul's, in Paul's letter, he spends the first half laying out the case that, look, you people are loved. God loves you. And I've seen the way you love each other, and it's beautiful, and it's incredible. And He's just letting them know, like, anchor yourself in God's love. Hold on to God's love and let it identify you. Let it be the thing that makes you who you are. And then the second half of the letter, he's talking about what it looks like then for people to live as followers of Jesus. Like, you've been loved by God. You've been made a follower of Jesus. Now here's what life looks like when you follow Jesus. And that's the second half of the letter to the Ephesians. So now we find ourselves in chapter 2. Paul didn't write in chapters, by the way. He didn't write in verses. He just wrote a letter like any one of us would. Um, But we've broken it down to make it a little easier to attack, make it easier to break up. And so we find ourselves here in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This church that has grown up in one of the major cities of Asia Minor in Turkey today. You can go visit the ruins of Ephesus if you want. We find ourselves here in the second chapter where in the first chapter, Paul has been talking to these Ephesian Christians and he's been saying, God called you, God chose you, God loves you and won't stop loving you. You didn't earn it, you didn't gain it, there was nothing you could do to make God love you, God just loved you and he chose to love you and he'll never stop choosing to love you. And I've seen the love in your community based on the love that God's given to you. Like, that's all of chapter 1. It's pretty amazing. God chose you. Now we go to chapter 2, and we start chapter 2 with one of the most offensive phrases in this letter. Listen here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. That's, Paul's just gone on and on about how you're dearly loved, how you love each other, it's amazing. And then he starts chapter 2 with this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, when he says you, Paul means Gentiles, non-Jewish people. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then he does something really amazing. He says, we too all previously lived according to the ways of this world. The we too means Jews. Paul's saying here, you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins. But guess what? We weren't immune to it either. I was a Pharisee, and we were dead in our sins and trespasses. 
We lived according to the ways of the world. Now, why does Paul start with this? After going on and on about the beautiful love of God, the amazing love of God. Here's why I think Paul does this. If you think you can earn God's love, it doesn't mean a ton. If you think you can gain God's love by your actions, if you think you can maintain God's love by your performance, it doesn't mean all that much. That puts the emphasis on you. It puts the emphasis on me. If we think we can come to God and do the right things and say the right things and perform the right ceremonies, and then God will love us, it cheapens God's grace. It cheapens God's love. But Paul starts here, we didn't earn it. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We couldn't gain anything. We couldn't come to God and bring anything that would earn his love or his favor. God loves us because he loves us. And that's where he'll go on next. He's rooted us now in the fact that we didn't earn anything from God. In fact, we didn't think about God. That's what it means to be dead to God. You know what it means to be dead to someone, right? Or someone to be dead to you. They're dead to me, right? I never think of them. For how many of us is that God in our lives? How much of our regular speech, of our regular conversation centers around God? For a lot of us, even Christians, God is functionally dead to us. Makes no practical impact on our daily life. Makes no practical impact on our conversation. For so many of us, as we've gone about our lives and and walked in the world and, and made the choices and decisions we've made, we've done so without any reference to God, without any thought to what God wants, without any thought to who he is. For many of us, functionally, God's dead to us. Even many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, functionally, God is dead to us. And Paul starts there. But then he follows up with two of the most beautiful words in the Bible. But God. Here's the situation, folks. Here's where we find ourselves. God is dead to us and we're dead to God. Spiritually, we're dead. We can't do anything to earn God's love or favor. We can't do anything to work our way into his grace. And so because of that, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You were dead spiritually, but God. 
God moved when you couldn't. God was alive when you were dead. God was coming to you when you could never get to him. God pursued you when you had no thought of him whatsoever. God did the doing. God did the action. God brought the life. God chose you and never stops choosing you. Here's the beauty of it. Listen to this. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means God loved you for the sake of loving you so that he could continue to love you forever and never stop loving you. Just sit on that for a second. When we couldn't do anything for God, when we couldn't come to him, when we were dead and couldn't make our way to him... God chose to love us so that he could love us, so that he could continually love us and never stop loving us. That's it. That's the truth of Christianity. That's the heart of the Christian religion. If you ever thought Christianity was about adopting some long list of rules so that God could love you and would adopt you, then you've been sold a lie. God loved you to love you so he could keep loving you. That's that's the whole of it. Right there. That's the whole of the Christian message. In Christ, God loved you and loves you and will always love you. And never, ever stop loving you. I love that phrase, in Christ. It's used 14 times in six chapters. This entire letter is just about what it is to be in Christ. And Paul's making it clear that to be in Christ right now means that we don't have any room for self-righteousness. We don't have any room to think that we're better than anybody else. We don't have any space to think that I was able to get into God's good graces, so what's wrong with you? We don't have any reason to come to someone else and to look down on them and put them down for their sin and for their shame and for what they're going through because we didn't bring anything to the table either. We're in the same position. And Paul makes it clear, Jews and Gentiles both. Paul was a Pharisee in another one of his letters, Paul will, Paul will say, I was one of the chief of the Pharisees. <laughs> Paul will say, I, I, I followed the law better than absolutely anybody else, and it wasn't right. It wasn't enough. I needed Christ. I needed Jesus. And here he's making it clear. Gentiles and Jews alike, we don't bring anything to the table. God chose to love us and never stops choosing to love us. And on that basis, then, we do the works that God gave us to do. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Listen, even the good works we do, they're not our own. They're prepared for us by God. Laid out for us by our good God who loves us and keeps loving us. And so we do good works. Now, the question, though, is what are these good works? Now, remember, Paul didn't write in verses and chapters. There are no breaks. So your Bible might have a a gap between verse 10 and verse 11. But Paul didn't write that way. In fact, when he wrote in Greek, there were no gaps whatsoever. It just went letter into letter into letter into letter into letter. So when you're reading this naturally and there are no breaks and there are no verses and there's nothing different, when you read to do good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And then in verse 11, you read, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. When you read those naturally flowing together, you read that the good works that God has given you 
is to love people who aren't like you. Let's read these next verses, 11 to 22. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made us both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace." He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the death, the ho- put, put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, why does Paul move from talking about the works that God has prepared for you to talking about how Christ has overcome any divisions in the community? Because the main way that love or that a lack of love shows up in this community is through division. In the letter to Corinth, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses all kinds of major issues happening in that community. He addresses the way that they do the Eucharist, the way that they come to the communion table. And he says, look, you rich people are bringing like really great, I talked about this last week, you rich people are bringing like really good food and great wine while the poor can't bring anything. And you don't share it, the rich are just gorging themselves and getting drunk while the poor people are eating their little loaves of matzah and that's all they got, right? And you're causing division within the community. You're not loving each other. And so in in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he gets to 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter that so many people even outside the church know And the whole point of that is that love shows up when you unify and you stop dividing with one another. Love shows up when you care for one another and you bring justice for one another. Love shows up when you stop the inequities within your community. Love shows up when you love one another equally. And Paul goes through this whole list of things in 1 Corinthians 13, of things that you can do, but without love, they're pointless. And I think that's what's going on here. Paul talks about the works that God has prepared for you to do. And then he goes on to talk about the way that Jesus has overcome the divisions in your community. And we know that in the world we live in right now, especially in the church, especially in churches that call themselves evangelical, and please don't hear that means you have to vote a certain way or that we vote a certain way or that we are connected to a particular partisan politic, When we talk about evangelical, we talk about loving Jesus, loving the cross, loving the word of God, and wanting other people to love it too. That's that's really what evangelical means, right? But especially within churches that call themselves evangelical, they can't hold together. We've been 
infiltrated. We've had the toxic disease of division creep into our churches, especially political division. And here, Paul's talking about a division that went way deeper than partisan politics and way deeper than whatever justice issue we're talking about at the time. He's talking about divisions that went far, far, far deeper than what divides us right now. He's talking about the division between Jews and Gentiles. And specifically about different kinds of Gentiles. Not all Gentiles were exactly the same. Many worshipped different ways. They were from different places. In a city like Ephesus, a port city, you got people from all over the known world gathering together. Even the Gentiles are different. And the Jews aren't monolithic either. There are all kinds of different groups of Jews at the time. There are all kinds of different practices and different ways of, of engaging with their faith. And so it's not just one division that Paul's talking about. He's talking about all kinds of natural divisions that happen between people. And Paul says, Jesus has broken those down. Remember that love that Jesus loved you with, that never-ending love that keeps choosing you even when you go astray? Remember that never-ending love that God gave you through Jesus Christ that keeps coming to you and choosing you even when you walk away? That love is the love that should mark your community because Jesus has overcome whatever other divisions there are. He is greater than anything else that would divide you, whether those are ethnic differences or political differences or ideological differences. Whatever they are, Jesus is greater. Jesus is more. Jesus is better. And he has torn down the walls. There aren't any anymore. And so what does love look like worked out in community? What does the love of God poured out for us through Jesus Christ look like when we gather together and follow Jesus together? It looks like us bringing our very real differences to the table, working through them in love, and honoring Jesus through it all. Making sure that he is the connective tissue between us. That it's the blood of Christ that binds us together more than the blood in our veins or the politics that we share It's Jesus who calls us together. And this is why we follow Jesus together. We follow Jesus because he's the one who's loved us and continued to love us. He's the one who continually chooses us. He's the one who laid down his life for us. He's the one who went to a cross so that our sin could be nailed to that cross and we could be free of it forever. He's the one who rose from the dead and in doing so rose you and me as well and gave us new life He's the one who's broken down the barriers between us so that nothing should be able to stand between us if we're bound together in Jesus. This is why we follow Jesus together. Because only he is worth giving our entire lives to and doing so as a community, doing so as one family. Because here's the fact. The love of God can't flow through me without someone to love on the other side. I can't be a follower of Jesus by myself. I can't. Not even God is totally singular. We believe God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even God is a community of love in himself. And I can't love and follow Jesus faithfully without someone to love. And so we come together where the love of Jesus gets to be exercised in community, in a community of people of radical difference, 
in a community of people who come from very different places with different backgrounds and different thoughts and different ways of being in the world. And we say, it's Jesus who unites us. That's our witness to the world, especially in a moment of such wild divisions. Our great witness to the world as the community of Jesus followers is that we come together and we sit next to someone who we, by no natural right, should be friends with. We sit next to someone and we put our arms around someone and we walk with someone and we love someone and we show up with a meal to someone's house who by all natural reasons we should have hostility with. But we say, no, Jesus has overcome our hostility. Jesus has overcome whatever divides us. And we can walk through and work through our differences because he's the one who binds us together in love. And when I love you, and I continue to choose to love you, and when you love me and you continue to choose to love me, even when I hurt you, even when I've made mistakes, we are living out the love of Jesus in our community. And that's how Jesus said we would be known as his followers. The love that you have for one another. Not the way you vote. Not even the doctrinal list that you have. Not the rituals that you go through. The love that you have for one another is what will mark us out as followers of Jesus, especially across radical difference. That's why we follow Jesus together. And that's why we come to this table. And that's why we will come to this table every single week to partake of the body and blood of Jesus, that which binds us together, that which unites us together in him. This is what overcomes our differences. It's at this table where the ground is level and all of those things that would divide us are washed away in the blood of Christ. It's where we are nourished by the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, where our love is renewed and we are reminded of the love of God that's chosen us and never stops choosing. And we are rooted deeply in that love so we can extend that to others in this community and outside of it so we can be living examples and witnesses to Jesus in every situation. And so we come to this table. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come forward and to partake of the body and blood. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to ask that you remain where you are and consider the God who loves you loves you so much that he's poured out his love in Jesus Christ and continues to do so.